0: This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 404, Unidentified Flying Candle in the Wind. Today, we're going to look at the persistent rumors and theories that the August 5, 1962 death of actress Marilyn Monroe was not a suicide, but rather a murder carried out by sinister government forces to prevent her from disclosing something, something that was truthful about the flying saucer cover-up. In particular, most stories say, that the U.S. had recovered a crashed spaceship and alien bodies. First though, a little follow-up to our tale of Charles Loughhead and Dorothy Martin. If you go to saucerlife.com, you'll see that occasionally we get comments on episodes from you, our loyal listeners. After Encounter 403 went out, a fellow named John Grant left a comment that just made my day. Turns out that back in the 1970s, John adapted and directed a stage version of When Prophecy Fails called Sananda Says. He also mentioned a novel inspired by the same events by Alison Lurie called Imaginary Friends, first published in 1967. The Amazon description of the book reads as follows. Tom McCann, a professor of sociology, and his young assistant Roger infiltrate a religious cult based in New York State, deciding it will make excellent study material. But they find it hard to maintain their deception, especially as Verena, the cult's leader, is an attractive woman. I'm unsure if the character named Tom McCann is a subtle reference to the brand of shoes. I plan to read the novel and find out. Imaginary Friends, John tells me, was also made into a television drama in the UK by Thames TV in 1987, as well as a BBC radio drama, which was last broadcast in 2015, but doesn't seem to be available for streaming on the BBC Radio 4 website. Information like this is just more evidence that The Saucer Life has one of the best audiences out there. Thanks, John. In fact, thanks to all of you who've provided such nice feedback about our extended foray into the world of 1950 saucer cults. It was a bear of a story to organize, and you'll forgive me, hopefully, if the next few installments are more compact and straightforward. I need some recovery time. Now, Marilyn Monroe. My starting point for this, and sort of the basis for my discussion of the theories that are out there, is a very slim 2003 book by a Donald R. Burleson, Ph.D., called UFOs and the Murder of Marilyn Monroe. I picked up this book, an autographed copy, uh, in May 2006 when I was visiting Roswell, New Mexico. In the past few years, there have been other venues discussing the connection between Monroe's death and the flying saucer cover-up. Many of these, however, draw from the same materials as Burleson and and do so less convincingly and much less charmingly. So Burleson's argument is going to be the basis for the discussion, though we'll discuss some of the other claims as well. To save time, I'm not going to go over Burleson's theories about Monroe's death being a murder rather than a suicide. There are a number of books out there that make similar arguments. Burlson's angle, after all, is the why of the death. Why was she murdered rather than um, other? So for our purposes, we'll go along with the notion that this was a murder carried out with the knowledge and complicity of President John F. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, for reasons we'll see, and limit our discussion to the more saucer-centric details. And I'm going to be very quick to admit that I know very little about Marilyn Monroe and her career beyond the basics. Donald Burleson, however, would appear to be a dedicated student of Monroe's, Monroe's And say Monroe, Monroe's life and work. His view of her is decidedly affectionate. In fact, it's so gushing that I begin to suspect that he might not be an objective observer where she's concerned. Here's a sample Dumb blonde, airhead, not on your life. What can one say about a woman who loved the music of Bella Bartok, a woman who quoted freely from the novels of Thomas Wolfe and the poetry of Robert Browning? A woman who loved Shakespeare and wanted to play the part of Lady Macbeth someday. A woman who went out of her way to cultivate the acquaintance of the poet Carl Sandburg. A woman who sat down and read James Joyce's notoriously difficult Ulysses. I once read Ulysses, too, but in a graduate course with a professor who guided her students through the novel's labyrinthine complexities. Marilyn read it on her own for pleasure. JFK can scarcely be blamed for being attracted to her. Everyone was attracted to her, and not merely because of her physical beauty. She possessed a kind of primal magnetism that riveted everyone's attention upon her when she walked into a room. There was something magical about her, as anyone who ever met her can attest. We are entering solid celebrity crush territory here. Um, But it's Marilyn Monroe, so maybe a little bit justified. Honestly, I've always been more of a Mamie Van Doren guy myself. Burleson's view of the Kennedy brothers is much less charitable, unsurprisingly. He begins by recounting the story of JFK's affair with Danish journalist Inga Arvad during his World War II service in the Navy. Arvad was under surveillance by the FBI due to her status as a resident alien and some social and journalistic connections with members of the Nazi party from back in the 1930s. Accordingly, Kennedy himself came under scrutiny as well, to a certain degree, and there's evidence that Kennedy's naval career was protected by his father's influence. The relationship led Burleson to make the following conclusion. His hormonal needs overshadowed his sense of official propriety, even his sense of the exigencies of national security. Apparently, for JFK, the old wartime Maxim, loose lips sink ships, didn't always penetrate into the bedroom. Not that, so far as known, he ever actually passed classified information along to Inga, or not that she necessarily wanted him to do so. Burleson also refers to JFK's possible drug use with another woman, Mary Pinchot Meyer. Meyer was murdered in 1964, and Burleson cites a biography of Robert Kennedy, Uh, To suggest that she was assassinated by, quote, either FBI or CIA agents who might have believed that in the course of her relationship with the president, he could have divulged important state secrets, end quote. So that's JFK, a libidinous, security scorning blabbermouth. What about Bobby? What does Burleson say about him? JFK, let's face it, was something of a jerk in that he viewed his countless women only as conquests and made very little effort to try to conceal his dalliances. Bobby was a jerk, too, big time, but he was a more careful jerk. Yeah, Bobby, you're just a big jerk. A big, careful jerk. In Burleson's narrative, uh, Jack pawned Marilyn off onto his brother when J. Edgar Hoover, quote, laid the law down to JFK about the president's having become a security risk due to his intimate association with Monroe, end quote, uh, because of her connections to various left-of-center types, supposedly. Eventually, Robert would abandon Marilyn as well, prompting her to supposedly tell friends that she might hold a news conference and, quote, tell all. Robert, the story goes, was instrumental in the murder of Marilyn Monroe in response to the threat of information about the affairs going public. The suggestion that the secrets Monroe would tell at this supposed press conference went beyond the carnal, though. In the mid-90s, a guy named Timothy Cooper presented a supposed CIA memo that was not released via the usual declassification process. It detailed a wiretapped phone call, supposedly, between journalist Dorothy Kilgallen and her friend Howard Rothberg, discussing Marilyn Monroe. It was dated August 3, 1962, shortly before Monroe's death. Here are some excerpts. And in these excerpts, um, when it says subject, that refers to uh, Marilyn Monroe. Rothberg indicated in so many words that she had secrets to tell, no doubt arising from her trysts with the president and the attorney general. One such secret mentions the visit by the president at a secret air base for the purpose of inspecting things from outer space. Kilgallen replied that she knew what might be the source of the visit. In the mid-50s, Kilgallen learned of secret efforts by the U.S. and U.K. governments to identify the origins of crashed spacecraft and dead bodies from a British government official. Kilgallen believed the story may have come from the New Mexico story of the late 40s. Kilgallen said that if the story is true, it would cause terrible embarrassment for Jack and his plans to have NASA put men on the moon. Subject repeatedly called the attorney general and complained about the way she was being ignored by the president and his brother. Subject threatened to hold a press conference and would tell all. Subject made reference to bases in Cuba and knew of the president's plans to kill Castro. Subject made reference to her Diary of Secrets and what the newspapers would do with such disclosures. This is a weird mix. You've got some out-there sort of UFO stuff, the Roswell-esque mention of the New Mexico story of the late 40s, and more political conspiracy material such as the references to Cuba and assassination attempts on Castro. It's the space stuff we're interested in in here, and there are some things that Burleson and other commentators on this document Point to that they claim market as genuine and that connect it to a secret UFO cover-up. One of these is a reference to Moondust. Project Moondust was an operation relating to the recovery of material from space that had crashed on Earth beginning in the 1950s and, and going on for some decades. Now, Moondust has been connected to crashed UFO retrieval operations. But the document that's been declassified is much more mundane, as mundane as things falling out of the sky from space can be, right? Here's one example of a message from the U.S. State Department concerning a crash in Canada. From Secretary of State, Washington, D.C., to American Embassy, Ottawa. Reference A reported that two pieces of metal, which may be space-related, were found on November 2nd, 1976, at Windsor, Ontario. Both pieces reportedly were shipped to Dr. Lager at the Directorate General of Intelligence and Security, Directorate of Scientific and Technological Intelligence in Ottawa. These two pieces may be from a non-U.S. satellite and would be of interest to USAF Foreign Technology Division at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio and to CIA's Office of Weapons Intelligence. POST is requested, in accordance with Reference C, to obtain detailed photographic coverage of these objects. POST is further requested to obtain full reports of all examinations made of these pieces by Canadian authorities. FTD has expressed possible interest in participating in examination of objects. POST is requested to assess possibility of such participation and inform department. POST is further requested to report information as required by Reference C and another involving the nation of Ivory Coast. From Secretary of State, Washington, D.C. to American Embassy, Abidjan. Please inform appropriate Ivory Coast authorities that USG willing to assist in identifying object. Cyrillic characters indicate probable Soviet origin, but positive identification and analysis of purpose, technical characteristics, etc. will require shipment to U.S. and physical examination. USG willing to carry out such analysis and to provide summary report of its conclusions to Ivory Coast authorities. If asked, you may undertake to return object to Ivory Coast upon conclusion of analysis. FYI, object is of routine interest to US agencies in order to confirm and update existing data. You should avoid giving impression that US places high value on acquiring object or firm commitment re-extent or nature of test report. Earlson also claims that with image enhancement, he can make out the name Shulgin on the document. Brigadier General George Shulgin was connected to whatever it was that crashed at Roswell in 1947. However, the relevance of the files that mention him to that incident have been challenged in one way or another. And one thing I haven't been able to figure out is, even if Shulgin was involved in whatever happened in Roswell in 1947, what's more important is what Shulgin's job, if anything, was in 1962 when this document was supposedly created. Burlson's claim is that because it's just sort of an impression or it's a shadow or something that was next to it and got transferred, he's very vague about how the word Shulgin got on to this document. He believes that this supposed CIA memo regarding this Marilyn Monroe wiretap was in the same file as Roswell material that would indicate that it was connected to Roswell. The document also concludes a marking referring to MJ-12, supposedly the government UFO cover-up group, which is itself ripe for an episode at some point in the future. Supposedly is an important qualifier, because Burleson's attempts to verify the document involved filing an FOIA request with the CIA, asking for any records of wiretaps of Monroe for the time in question. His book's publisher, Black Mesa Press, explains the proof, proof in sort of, air quotes, that the document was genuine on its website. This is a CIA document that appeared sometime in the early 1990s and has been unwittingly authenticated by the CIA itself, in that when Dr. Donald Burleson, author of UFOs and the Murder of Marilyn Monroe, filed his appeal of the CIA's refusal to release transcripts of government wiretaps on Monroe's telephones, the appeal, which was largely based on this August 3, 1962 document in question, was accepted. Ultimately, no transcripts were released, but the acceptance of appeal process did demonstrate that the document is of authentic CIA provenance. The CIA could have denied the authenticity of the document and could thus have turned the appeal down, but they did not. It is contrary to agency policy to accept any Freedom of Information Act request or appeal based on documents which the CIA does not acknowledge to be authentic. So tacitly, they acknowledged that the document is genuine. I don't actually think that's a good argument, from my experiences with FOIA requests anyway. Couldn't the CIA have denied the authenticity of the document in its initial claim that there were no records? If we follow this line of thinking, then every time the CIA accepts an appeal of an FOIA finding, it's evidence that the documents must exist. It's a stretch. Researcher and writer Nick Redfern, who's written more books than I've recorded podcast episodes, he's written more books this year probably than I've recorded podcast episodes, wrote an article about this document for the Mysterious Universe website back in May of 2017. And in this article, he provides an interesting and, and plausible explanation that connects the reference to Moondust with the supposition that what Monroe knew could have been embarrassing to President Kennedy. Now, some might say that references to dead bodies, to things from outer space, and to crashed spacecraft are references to Roswell and deceased aliens. On the other hand, however, the very fact that the document references Project Moondust suggests another possibility, namely, that the subject matter may have been a failed and still unknown early Soviet manned mission into space, one which predated Yuri Gagarin's flight into outer space on August 12, 1961. There's another bit of data that supports this scenario. Recall that the document states Kilgallen said that if the story is true, it could cause terrible embarrassment to Jack and his plans to have NASA put men on the moon. For ufologists, this is, or should be, a problem. So, even if the document is genuine, it might not have anything to do with extraterrestrial beings or craft. The reference to MJ-12 as well is a bit problematic, But there are arguments that since mj-12 has appeared on genuine documents mj-12 was an actual cryptonym or committee or organization of some kind but that doesn't necessarily mean it referred to a beyond secret government ufo study group burleson provides a sort of what-if scenario near the end of his book in which he explains what would have happened if marilyn monroe had lived to deliver that press conference that he believes demonstrates why the Kennedys had to have her murdered. Marilyn steps in front of the cameras on Monday morning in Los Angeles and says, The President of the United States has told me an amazing story. Back in 1947, a flying saucer from outer space crashed in New Mexico, and the Army recovered some debris and some little bodies. The bodies weren't human. Jack told me that he had recently gone to a secret place, some Air Force base in Ohio, and had seen the spacecraft and the alien bodies. He said all this is top secret, but I think the American people have a right to know about it. Imagine what would probably happen now. In seconds, the story goes around the world, the White House is deluged with calls, the President is in a real jam. He can deny the story, but he knows very well that Marilyn Monroe is a popular, incredible public person. You don't get a thousand pieces of fan mail a day by being disliked. And he knows that if he denies her account, he can only be digging himself deeper into trouble. Let us even set aside for the moment the stunning revelation that has apparently been made about the government's knowledge of extraterrestrial contact more immediate from a political standpoint is the talk elsewhere from the street corner bar to the halls of Congress to the effect that Jack Kennedy disclosed top secret information to someone not authorized to retrieve it. At this point, the old stories of his affairs with a suspected Nazi spy, Inga Arvad, and various gangland women would surface. And what does it mean to give away top secret information? What does it mean to give away top secret information? Carlson's claim is that because of this, Bobby Kennedy would be forced as Attorney General to prosecute his brother, the President, for treason. And this would lead to a, a downfall to Kennedy presidency, and, and that is why Marilyn Monroe had to be murdered. Yeah. You know, I'm not debunking anything. I think that the CIA document might be genuine. I think that if it is genuine, I kind of agree with Nick Redfern, that it probably doesn't have anything to do with aliens. But I really, really take issue with the assumption of what would have happened at that press conference and afterward. I need to admit something, dear listener. I am a miserable cynic about a lot of this stuff. When we get out of the land of, of fanciful contactees and, and my personal nostalgia for some of this stuff, I tend to lose patience a little bit. And when I first read this theory about what would happen if she gave such a press conference, I rolled my eyes so hard, I suffered a severe injury. Couldn't uh, unroll my eyes for a while. My face actually stuck like that, parents say. The more I read it, though, the more I liked it. Not because I agreed with it. Good grief. No. No, no, no. But rather, because I became enchanted with Burlson's assumption The mass media and general public of 1962 thought Marilyn Monroe was as brilliant and as amazing a sort of renaissance woman as Burleson clearly does. If, and it's a huge if, such a press conference had ever taken place, I cannot imagine any other outcome than Monroe being roundly ridiculed and portrayed as being deeply unbalanced. Being conspiratorial, by nature, I can easily see her... Film career ending very quickly, her connections in the industry evaporating by about lunchtime. Ridiculed by the press, with whispers of insanity circling, she finds herself placed in some manner of inpatient psychiatric care for a long time, long enough for the story of her plainly nuts press conference to blow over. She's not heard from again, apart from a tell-all book she writes in, oh, I don't know, 1977 or something, shortly before her untimely but utterly natural death, in 1981 at the age of 55. During those last four years of her life, her tell-all book and recordings of the 1962 press conference become fodder for conspiracy theorists. The press conference becomes a key component in the evidence for the Roswell incident that's being built there in the late 1970s as Stan Friedman and Bill Moore start their research into that. Yeah, that's some actual real life Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe conspiracy fan fiction I've just doled out, or alternate history. Let's call it alternate history. Sounds less sad than Marilyn Monroe conspiracy theory fan fiction, but I think it's a more likely conjecture than what Burlson gives us. Although I like the book, actually, you can probably see this entire podcast episode as an extended read this book segment for Marilyn UFOs and the murder of Marilyn Monroe despite my misgivings about his arguments it's a it's a quick read it's well written it's actually well written it's a well written book it it's not bad uh, one thing that comes through is his admiration and love for Marilyn and correspondingly his disdain for John and Robert Kennedy i don't think the evidence supports his conclusions necessarily and i think some of his reasoning is kind of flawed And further, I don't think the the cover sketch by Burleson's wife looks anything like Monroe. But despite these flaws, it's a good-faith effort to connect some dots, and the sort of stark, low-budget design makes it the perfect book to leave lying around when entertaining if you think you'll need some conversation starters or want to show off just how deeply you've sunk into the saucer life. In our next encounter, we're going to go back to the good old days and look at one of the Flying Saucer Golden Ages... Wait, no we aren't, that's episode after next. Next episode, it's not as golden. We start to look at where it all went wrong. Because you see, there's this thing called the internet and it's been around longer than you might think. Next time, we go back to the 90s and look at some of the funniest, strangest, scariest and most influential contributions to that wasteland of the digital universe, Usenet group, alt.alien.visitors. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time... Keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.